So um, beginning of the summer, we were plotting out what we were going to do. Um, and we invited Edson to, to share some of the messages and reached out to a couple of people just to mix things up. And he says, I, I have this series I want to do on love, which he just did for the past three weeks. And, uh, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a thing on Psalms. So uh, let's separate those two. I'll go after you um, and, and we'll, we'll get started. And so his first week, I was researching, thinking through, like, what am I going to do? And I was like, you know what would be really cool is if we did a responsive reading. And then I come on Sunday morning and Edson does, I was actually reading Psalms 139, which is exactly what he did, right? And he did it every week. And I was like, well, there goes that plan, right? So uh, for the next four weeks, uh, what I'm going to have uh, happen is for a guest speaker to come and read our, our text. Uh, so Debbie, would you welcome Debbie Weiser? <clears throat> We're going to be spending his time in Psalms 1 today, so she's going to read that for us. Oh. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish amen Thank you. Yeah. So Dennis, you're next week. I'm, I'm joking, but you can do it if you want. Um, <clears throat> everyone has their favorite psalm, right? Um, for a long time now, I, the psalms has been something that I've wanted to understand more. I've wanted to be able to unpack it more. And time and time again, what I find is that when people say, what, how, do you, how do you read the psalms? They say, oh, it's just, a, it's just a book of songs. So you just read through it and glean what you want, right? Um, I've heard that time and time again. And that's, that's what, what we're going to do for the next four weeks is is try to put some meat to the Psalms to make us better Psalm readers. So let's start by, let's start by understanding where the Psalms came from, right? So the Psalms, the 150 chapters, uh, David wrote, the, uh, well, almost a majority of them, 73 of them. Um, and it's arguable that he wrote more than that. And the, the Psalms were actually a collection of, of songs that the Second Temple Jews put together. And knowing that is actually really informative to me because they've gone through this whole process of uh, being in exile and then coming home and singing these songs as part of worship to God at the temple. And so uh, when you think about a song, it's probably not the Psalms, right? Some of you think of Bruno Mars. It's probably that section back there. Right? And then Shania Twain, maybe Will, right? Or uh, if you're Chris, it's Dolly Parton. Uh, if, if it's me, it's uh, Jimi Hendrix, right? Come on, let's go. And then the greatest band of all, CCC. Some of you don't even know what that is, Credence Clearwater Revival, right? Like, that's where it's at, right there. Or maybe even... Um, John Lee Hooker, Chris said I couldn't say that from stage. John Lee Hooker is like one of the original blues writers, which is probably more in line with what the Psalms are like, right? So what, what genre is, are the Psalms? You read some of them, they sound like death metal, right? God, how long are you going to tarry? Come kill these people, right? <clears throat> if the Psalms are 
are actually uh, working in tandem with the narrative of Scripture. So First and Second Samuel are, is a narrative text, and that's, it's telling us a story of the lives of uh, Samuel and David and, and Saul and all these people, the nation of Israel, right? And so how they work in tandem is uh, there's one is telling you a story, and the Psalms are filling in the emotion of what's happening in the narrative. And so you can, you can actually, with many of the Psalms, you can actually read a, the narrative portion and say, oh, there's a Psalm linked to this that David wrote in the cave when he was fleeing Saul or when he was fleeing Absalom. And so what I want us to do with our time for the next four weeks is to, is to learn how to bring our emotions to the Psalms and then progress from our emotions to worshiping the King. Okay, so uh, we all have emotions, uh, and then just what do I do with the emotions, and then how does that lead me to worship? No matter what the, what the emotion is, how does that lead me to worship Jesus? And I want to clarify something. Emotions are not bad. Everyone feels things, right? We all feel things. If you don't feel things, you might need to see someone about that. <clears throat> but the example of this psalm is that no matter the emotion or what we're experiencing, ultimately, what that's going to drive us toward is worship to a God who cares about his creation, about you. It's not our emotions that drive us to develop doctrine or theology. It's actually the other way around. Our doctrine, our theology inform our feelings, inform us of who God is and what he's done for us. So Psalms 1 is intentionally placed at the beginning, and it is going to tell you how to traverse the remainder of the Psalms. It's not actually written in order. The Second Temple Jews compiled the Psalms and put them together, and they said, this Psalm is what we should do in the beginning. And so our time today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna break down big pieces of, of Psalms 1, and we're going to let it tell us how we should read the Psalms, how we should respond. So Psalms 1 and 2 are intricately linked together, but we're just gonna focus on, on the 1 today. So Psalms 1 is going to, is going to help you develop a posture it's going to help you develop a mindset, and it's going to set your expectations for what the remainder of the Psalms do, say, and help you to feel, okay? So, um, the Psalms are separated into five different books. In the first book, all but four of the Psalms are attributed to David. And so Psalms one and two, are not written by David, but for the sake of today's purpose, I want you to think that whoever wrote the psalm was thinking of David as the subject of the psalm, that they had his life in mind, okay? And so, uh, what's the theme of David's life? You meet David when uh, God tells Samuel, I'm going to anoint a different king other than Saul. And Samuel comes to the house of Jesse and he meets the first son and he says, he looks at him and he says, oh, that's a, that's a king right there, right? And God says, no, no, you're, you're judging someone by the outside, by the cover, right? Never judge a book by the cover. And that's what Samuel was doing. God says, no, 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 not that one. And so Samuel progresses down the line until he, he exhausts everyone that's in the house. And God says, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. Samuel says, you have any more sons to Jesse? And he says, I got one in the field. And, and uh, David comes up and it says that he has a fair complexion, but he doesn't look like a king. He says he's ruddy rosy in the cheeks. This is kind of a weird description, right? And so 
he's already at odds with his family members. He's the youngest, littlest one. He doesn't deserve to be a king. He doesn't look like a king. And then he, he uh, is called by his dad to go to the front lines of, of Israel's battle with the Philistines, right? And he gets there, and there's, a, there's an uproar about Goliath. And he, he says, says out loud, he keeps talking about this. He says, uh, why are you guys worried about Goliath? Don't you understand that God is with us and that he can defeat any enemy? And his brothers, the kingly brothers, look at David and go, shut up. Stop talking like that. You don't know what you're, you don't know what you're talking about. Get out of here. But he keeps on, right? He's the little brother. Some of you know what that's like. I, I don't know what it's like to be a little brother. I don't think I've ever been little. <clears throat> And then David meets Saul, and David is in the king's palace, and he's playing a song for Saul, and Saul has a a spirit in him, right? And as David's playing this lovely tune, he gets a spear chucked at him, and then he runs off into the wilderness and lives maybe years of his life fleeing from this man. And then he has a bunch of these other interactions with kings that are are negative. And then at the end of his life, he has this situation with Absalom. You remember that? This horrific thing that he's he's experiencing where his his son actually uh, tries to take the kingdom from him by lies. And he flees again. And so, how would you describe David's life? What's the word you would use? Well, based on the stories that I told you just now, you wouldn't say that David is blessed. It's not what you would call him. And yet, Psalms 1 starts out with, blessed is the man. And for intensive purposes today, what I want us to do is to say, blessed is David. You keep going, you you turn the page and you read Psalms 3, which is David's response to running from Absalom. He says, three... Verse one and two says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Chapter five, verse one, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Does that sound like a blessed man? Some of the translations also use the word happy to describe this man. Happy? I, what? Is that, is that how you would describe David? I don't think so. But then you traverse to the New Testament and you take a look at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount which is actually pulled from Psalm 1. If you actually read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see pieces of it the whole way through from chapters 5, 6, and 7. You read it to you. And you tell me, which one do you want to be categorized as blessed? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be peacemakers. Sorry, they they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they are persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you pick out the one that you want to be known as? I I guess I could be a peacemaker. I could be merciful. Meek. I've definitely already mourned, right? Because I live life. What about the first and the last? There's probably no one in this room who says, I really like being poor in spirit or started out poor in spirit, right? It's like... How you start out life is prideful, thinking that you know better than God himself, right? But it's definitely not the last one, right? Especially for us Americans, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And yet, what I described as David's life, that's persecution. Running for your life from people who want to end it right? This is how you become blessed. This is the path that God is is putting us on as followers of him. And so the first word of the first psalm is trying to get you to take your eyes off of the circumstances that you currently reside in. The things that capture your attention and that you cannot look away from because you want them to be gone so badly. It says, no, 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 you should know that you are blessed. It's the first position that we should take when we come to the Psalms. I remember very vividly <clears throat> sitting in my mother's room, uh, living room, and having a conversation with her. Um, and up until this point, up until this point in my life, what I wanted out of life was to find uh, an attractive woman that would love me, right? I admit it, it's a very selfish thing to want, right? But I think that a lot of people start there, you know? I want someone to, to come alongside me and fulfill, help me fulfill my desires, right? And so for a long time, probably, I don't know, 15 years, that was the, the goal, right? I mean, I had other goals, but like, that's what I was shooting for, you know? Is to find someone that, that I, I enjoyed being enough around that would also love me. And my mom was very aware of that. I, sh- I shared that with her, you know, a very open relationship with her, good relationship. Uh, and I came home one day, and this is after the Lord had been stirring in my heart. One night I, I laid in bed and I was, I was kind of anguishing over this whole idea that, that I, was, I was understanding God and his love for me in new and profound ways. And that was beginning to, to shift the desires that I had. And so I walked into my, my mom's living room. I had a conversation with her. I said, mom, I'm not sure I'm ever gonna get married. And it was like the, the, she couldn't hold her face together, right? Her jaw hit the floor. What? This has been like your pursuit for as, as long as I can remember, right? This is what you're going after. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll follow the Lord overseas somewhere. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's calling me to something else. But, but I'm starting to get the impression that that whatever God has for me is better than what I could find in a woman. It took me a long time to get to that place. What's ironic about that is almost as if I found and received God's love, here comes Maranatha. It's crazy. So David is the blessed one. And as we read the Psalms, you should also consider yourself blessed 
if you have given your life to Christ. And then what happens in the Psalms, which is indicative of poetry, especially Hebrew poetry, is that, is that there's parallelisms and contrasts. Okay, so for the, for the next three lines, he's going to uh, consider the way to not be blessed. Okay? And he starts out, he says, uh, you, should, you, can, you should not walk in the ways of wicked counsel. And I think that when we read this, our first mindset is, well, I mean, I don't go to fortune tellers. You know, like, like that's, what, that's what you would consider wicked or perverse. And I don't do that, right? But that's, that's not the... the that's not all that he's after in this. Uh, what he means by this is that uh, we should not only seek to um, have a bunch of counselors in our lives that, that lead us and, and have input into us, but that we should be discerning about who is able to speak into our lives. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says it this way. Ephesians 4 uh, 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the winds, by the waves carried about in every wind of doctrine by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Wicked counsel is simply the suppression of truth. Someone who says, I know that that causes you to not do what you want to do, but we'll just call that not true anymore. And then we can do what we want. This is actually a, a manner of living. It's called the pride of life, right? And when you surround yourself with people who are wickedly or wicked in their counsel, then you are going to be full of lies, led astray. Then the second thing that uh, the psalmist writes is, you're not blessed when you stand in the way of sinners. This is a, a level of confidence to say, no, 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 no. I'm not only going to suppress the truth, but I'm actually going to take a stance that this is the way that I want to live my life. And, I, and if anyone else wants to... Uh, consider this wrong or try to tell me to go down a different direction, then I'm, I don't need that person in my life. I'm going to stand firm in my convictions about what I want, the desires that I have, right? There's a phrase that happens throughout the Psalms and then in Revelation, it's a question. And the question is, who can stand it's in Psalm 130, it's on Psalm 76, 7. It says, you alone are to be feared. When you are angry, who can stand before you? Revelation chapter 6, John is seeing this vision and he says, who is able to stand before a God like you? And in chapter 7, he answers the question. It's the righteous only the righteous that are able to stand before him. And so this concept of standing in the way of sinners is not something you can actually do. You just need to give it time for it to play out. And the last one is to sit in the seat of scoffers. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's, it's so crazy. It's actually over the past um, year, um, as I've joined church staff and experienced what it's like to be a pastor, 
I hear more often the criticisms of the church than I ever have. I actually don't want to be as people say to me. I'm not sure that they know I'm a pastor or if they would change their tune if I did know, they did know. Uh, but they say, I, I don't want anything to do with the church. It's like, wh- why? I don't want to be associated with hypocrites. Uh, I mean, oh, okay. Uh, well, let me explain something to you. The, the people who come to church, our, our body, these people, you understand that you are in this room for the sole reason that you don't have it together. That you need help, right? I, I actually understand that I'm a hypocrite and I'm here because of that, right? So then it begs the question, are you not being hypocritical in making that statement? This this turning on its head. You are actually sitting in the seat of scoffers and casting judgment on people saying, I would never lower myself enough to do that. I can't be associated with those people, right? It's like, I don't don't think you fully understand the words that you're saying and what you're revealing in your own heart, right? I talked about, uh, I, I sometimes wonder if this will bite me, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Uh, I, I've told you before about my Uncle Joe, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty confident he'll never hear this because he's not gonna listen. But if he does, then we'll have a conversation or maybe a fist fight, I don't know. Uh, but my, my uncle is, is, uh, is very set in his ways. He's, he married my, uh, my aunt in older age, so he's not really my uncle. He's just some guy that's around when I'm home, you know. Um, but I enjoy having a conversation with him because he's, he likes to debate or, or argue, right? And I was told in fifth grade that I could argue with a stop sign. So um, there you go. Um, <clears throat> before Maranatha got married, uh, we were sitting at his pool in his, his very nice house, and he's, he starts giving us marriage advice. And, and it was the worst advice I'd ever heard anyone give anyone about marriage. He just started ra- rattling off years of marriage, whole years. The, the first year of marriage, the third year, the fifth year, the seventh year, the 13th year, those will all be horrible years. And so I started counting, how, how many years has my aunt had to endure with you thinking that every of these years is just gonna be terrible, right? Like, no thanks, I, I don't want the wicked counsel that you just tried to give me, you know what I mean? Uh, and so then we progressed to moving to Alaska and I'm sitting down with my aunt and telling her about um, this, this opportunity that we have and that we have to raise support to, to come here. And he, he leans over and he says, listen, we'll support you as long as you don't strong arm people in becoming Christians. And I'm thinking, what, what are you? You think we're just like carrying around a bucket and dipping people in there for baptisms and saying, hey, now you're a Christian, thanks. Give us some money. That's not how it works. And yet he's, he's, he's just so stuck in that way, right? Like... This is my counsel, and here we go, and I'm standing for this, and uh, it's just, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm in awe of the guy, you know? Like, I don't want to get too close, but um, there actually isn't a better picture of this playing out than Proverbs chapter 7. Uh, Proverbs chapter 7 is King Solomon writing to his sons. And he says in the beginning, he says, uh, listen to my instructions. Keep them in your, in your heart. Make sure that you carry them with you everywhere you go so that, so that things will go well for you. Proverbs chapter 7 and Psalms chapter 1 are actually mirror images of each other. This is the same message. It's actually happening throughout scriptures that Psalm 1 is again and again played out. Jeremiah, 
heavily influences the New Testament with Jesus and some of his parables. It's crazy. But in, in Proverbs chapter 7, he says, keep these things. And then he starts telling him a story about a young man. And the young man is uh, walking down the street. He's walking. It's late at night. King Solomon's like, that guy's probably up to no good. And then he finds a, a street corner. The young man finds a street corner. And he stands there with a woman who's loud and whose feet will not keep her at home. They start to have a conversation. Hey, I just went to the temple today. This is Lady Folly. I just went to the temple today and I, I made my vow, made my sacrifice. And then I went home and I spread out my couch with blankets and I perfumed them. And then she says this, she says, come let us delight ourselves with love. The young man walks, the young man stands, and the young man is invited to sit on the couch of the antithesis of wisdom. Do not walk in the counsel of, in wicked counsel. Do not stand in the way of sinners. Do not sit in the seat of scoffers. And so what Lady Folly is asking this young man to do is, hey, uh, this version of love that I'm telling you about is a feeling. Will you come feel with me? Even if you wrap that up in marriage, right? That, that version of a feeling, how long does that last? How long does it last? It lasts until death do you part. I'm sorry for you young newlyweds and people about to get married who are holding your fiance saying, uh, this is my partner forever. That's not how it works. This is just temporary. We're only here for a little while. So what is eternal? What is moving beyond that? Is beyond the love that the Lady Folly offers you. It's actually intimacy with Christ that he wants to unify you with. And that is eternal. So blessed is the man Here's three ways to not be blessed. And then the contrast comes in. Blessed by the law. Some of you are thinking, I, what? I don't want that. This is what it says. Blessed is the man. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night so for the psalmist, when he's writing this, when he writes the word law, what he literally means is the five first books of the, New Te of, the, of the Old Testament. The Torah, all of them combined is what they had. My delight is in the Torah. Have you read Leviticus? Have you read Numbers? So I delight in it. And then I meditate on it. And the word meditate, what, he, what, what that means is that, is that I actually take those words and I commit them to memory and I say them. I actually speak them over my life as I go about my day. You can't actually spend all night and all day reading this book, right? You have other things to do. But you can commit them to memory and let them soak throughout your day. It's actually one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. So you're in partnership with him to know God, to know his word. Both Ezekiel and John are told to eat the scroll. Eat the scroll. Put this in here. It's the same thing that King Solomon tells his son. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
How are we doing? Is that, is that something that we're committed to? Like as a church, are we, are we committed to daily life saying, I'm, I'm going to come to this and I'm going to put it in me so that throughout the day I'm thinking about what God is like. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. But it's not just the, new, the Old Testament, it's the new too. Paul writing in Romans chapter seven says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. There's still a better way. There's a better way for me to understand. There's a better way for me to know And if you are a follower of Christ and you are pursuing him, you're chasing after him, then there is a progressive revelation that he wants to give to you in order that you would know him more. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, the one that's read at so many uh, weddings, Chapter 13, verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so Paul is is recalling Moses' time on Mount Sinai where he's, unveiling his face before the Lord and he's literally shining in his presence. That's what we're after. That's where delight is found. That's what's happening when you pick this up. You're saying, okay, wait, but, but all they had was a Torah. So they just had to read the Torah? All, every time? That, that, that'd be a little hard. I'd, I'd have a hard time without, if I didn't have the New Testament, maybe I wouldn't be able to read my Bible. So, I'm gonna pose something to you. This is extra biblical. This is not in the text, but I think I have grounds to go there. Jeremiah 17 says that There will be one day when Israel wants to have a king and I will institute him. But here's the first rule. You're going to give him the book of my law and he's going to sit down and he's going to record for himself by his own hand each word of my law so that it'll go well with him and for the whole nation of Israel. And so drop down into with me the narrative of David taking Bathsheba for himself, killing Uriah, losing his child. He says, well, maybe I should get back to my kingly duty of uh, jotting down some law. And he comes to Exodus Chapter 20, he starts to read the Ten Commandments. Shall have no other God before me. Yeah, I got that one. Thanks, God. Shall not make idols out of wood or stone. Yeah, I don't really do that. And he gets a little bit further. You should not bear false witness. That one stings a little bit. He reads the next one. Should not kill. Ah. That one's, I'm not sure I can keep writing. But he does anyway. Should not commit adultery. Man. He gets to the last one. Should not covet your neighbor's goods. I've done. I've done all those, God drops down to his knees and he's just, what am I gonna do? 
You want to imagine that Jesus does in that moment? It's just like he does when he comes to the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. Your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. He lifts David's face. Let's come back to me. I'll forgive you. See, the point isn't that you traverse the laws with excellence. Scripture is very clear. God has no expectation that you are going to keep from doing any of these things, right? The point of the law, the point of the Torah, the point of what the psalmist is trying to get you to meditate on is that he wants you to know the lawgiver. So don't kill becomes God is the one who brings life, who sustains life, who makes life. Don't commit adultery. God is the one who is coming after his bride at the cost of his own life. Don't bear false witness. God is a God who can be trusted because when he speaks and when he makes a promise, you have no doubt that that will be true and it will be kept. So even in the Old Testament law, you meet Jesus. Meditate on it. Take it. Put it in you. And then the psalmist comes to my favorite part. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in in the season, and its leaf does not wither In all that he does, he prospers. So being blessed becomes bearing fruit. You see, what God is in the business of doing is he's in the business of of planting you next to a life-giving source. Did you know that every major character, I'm I'm pretty certain of this, every major character has some sort of um, connection to a tree? Did you know that? Uh, Well, you have to cheat a little bit, okay. So Samson, in Hebrew, they use the word tree for multiple things, right? So Samson's tree is his yoke, which is made of wood. It's the same word. Jonah's tree is the plant that comes up out of the ground. And what's interesting about this is the, the, the psalmist uh, is saying that when you, when you plant something, you have to take something from somewhere else and put it somewhere. Right? It's not just like planting doesn't just happen without something moving. Same idea happens traversing scripture with the idea of planting too. These aren't on the screen, but I'll go through them quickly. Adam in Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had planted, whom he had formed. So God plants a garden, and then he plants Adam in the garden. Why? Relationship. To walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Genesis 9. Noah steps off the boat. And God says to Noah, be blessed, Noah and his sons, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What do trees do? They multiply. They bear fruit. Just a little while later in verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. 
Abram, Genesis 13, God says to him, Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. There's his tree, and there's his planting of putting an altar there to remember exactly what God had promised. All of this land is mine, God. Here's my worship to you. Moses, Exodus 15, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you, your hands have established. God is, God is planting you next to himself to give you life. Proverbs 3, 13 through 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding from the grain from her is better than the, the gain for, from silver and from, excuse me, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you, you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honors. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She, speaking of wisdom, which is this, is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, those who hold fast are called blessed. Then you traverse to the New Testament, and Paul says that what God is doing, this mystery of what God is doing on the cross and through the cross is that he is now grafting the Gentiles into the olive tree, his bride. Do you notice who's orchestrating the planting? God is coming after your heart, your mind, and your soul. And that he wants you to have him because he desires a relationship with you. This is so prevalent through Jesus' ministry. In John 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. It's the same text. Abide in me. What he's saying here, abide in me, is the same thing that psalmist is saying in Psalm 1. Come after him. Know that you're blessed because he's here. He's with you. So he's come to restore, redeem, renew. Jesus starts his ministry. He quotes Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, three ends with, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, right? He says, I've come to do all these things, bind up the brokenhearted, make the blind see, the deaf hear. But he ends with this, he says, so that those who I've healed may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so we come to the Psalms with a position of being blessed by his goodness, by his mercy, by his grace. And then we take a position of being delightful towards him because of that. And then we take a position of being planted next to the life giver. You know what the largest organism on earth is? 
It's actually called Pando. The largest organism on earth is a tree. It's a group of quaking aspens in Pando, Utah. It's thought to be uh, 13 million pounds made up of 40,000 trees and it spans 106 acres. It's thought to be prehistoric. You say, Matt, trees aren't one organism. This tree is. This tree started with one tree and then began to spread its root out and make new trees. This is the image that uh, is in Daniel when he says, I'm going to plant a new tree. Jesus is coming. And it's all in here for us to discover, to take hold of, to delight in, to meditate on, to change our lives. as we traverse these next three weeks I want you to come knowing that you're blessed taking partaking in being delightful about his law and what he's done for us and from that position of being planted with him we're going to take our emotions and let them lead us to worship because if we start there there's no way we'll end up anywhere else As you respond this morning, there'll be uh, prayer members back here. Um, Sing your hearts out here with Chris. Um, Take communion, give. But be blessed. Would you pray with me real quick? Father, I ask that, uh, God, that we would respond to the invitation to meet you in your word that we would approach it with a boldness and a a delightfulness and urgency to meet with you. We set our face to you with an expectation of knowing you more, loving you more, understanding you more. And in the end, would we end in a place where, God, we are are so close to you because of the time that we've spent with you. Pray that that would that would be uh, what you have for us this week, and that we would enter into that with you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Well, guys, thanks so much for being here. We don't officially end till 12:30. If you want to stick around and help our teardown crew, um, we'd love that. Uh, also, if you are having trouble finding food, uh, knowing where your next meal comes from, come see one of our team, and we would love to help you. Thanks. Have a great Sunday.